soda listeners, or whom I'm now calling Sotins. Are we, did we, did we form our own, like, little country? Yeah, well, it's like, instead of Minnesotans, it's S-O-T-A-N-S. Sotins. <laughs> <laughs> well, crap. What do we do now, Jace? <laughs> you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about some art. Oh, heck yeah, we are. Oh, my goodness. Sarah, what are you going to talk you, about? Well, I, you go first, please, by all means. I hear what? you have some. I go first. Yeah, art to talk about here. Oh, oh, my goodness. Do I ever have some art to talk about? Listen, I had the pleasure, the absolute pleasure of interviewing Jonathan Aller. Jonathan is um, is an artist who lives in the Twin Cities. And as per usual, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to give it away. But oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This interview is so good, you guys. What kind oh, of art? So amazing. Really? Oh, uh, do I want to give away? I will say, I will say that he is an oil painter. I'm sure you're all going to really love it. This week, I'll be reviewing the exhibition that actually Sarah and I both went to the last time I was in Minneapolis. It is at the Museum of Russian Art, and the exhibition is called From Nonconformism to Feminisms. Russian women artists from the, and I'm going to butcher this, Kolodzai Art Foundation. That, that sounds decent. Thank you. I, I have no knowledge of Russian, so I apologize for anybody who is listening that does. Uh, feel free to let me know. Educate me. All right, Sarah, should we kick it over to your interview? Absolutely. Let's go. So I am here with Jonathan Aller. Jonathan is an oil painter who lives and works in the Twin Cities. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Are you an oil painter, Jonathan? I am not an oil painter. I'm going to contradict you right now. I think you should. Um, I am an oil painter, but I <laughs> the new body of work that I'm producing, that I have been producing, is uh, a lot of mixed media. So acrylics, latex, uh, markers, color pencils, as well as with oils, and spray paint. So not just primarily oils. So would you do you still classify yourself as a painter then? I do. Okay. Yes, I do. Yes. More on that later. We're going to yes. talk about process. Yes. It's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So give us a little bit of background. Um, who are you? Where are you from? Why do you do what you do? I, I was born, raised in Miami, and then I went to, I got my BFA at Ringling College of Art and Design oh. in Sarasota. Yep. And I, when I finished, I originally went because I wanted to be an illustrator. And the reason I said illustrator in the beginning is because that was the major I had to be in in order to be a traditional animator. This was before computer animation really blew up mm-hmm. 2000 the year 2000 the traditional animation then completely hit the fan nobody wanted to do it when I was in my sophomore year of college and it completely became computer animation so I kind of I was in a limbo because I love the traditional aspect of animation I really really do I, I love the you know I, I would have the disc yeah. in high school I had I, I had the disc I had the paper I would draw and all that kind of stuff and um, I love the process of it. I love the archaic nature of animation compared to now. So yeah, so then they, you know, traditional animation hit the fan. I was like, well, what am I going to do now? And I, in college, I found all these, you know, painters that I fell in love with, you know, the, in the Renaissance era, the Baroque era. To be specific, I, you know, it was Caravaggio's The Calling of St. Matthew that just stopped me in my tracks. And this is before I even decided to change 
And I saw that painting in history class, and I, I still remember it until today. And it was just Jesus pointing to, you know, St. Matthew. Yeah. And the light coming in and just being, you know, a very chiaroscuro background, you know, which was Caravaggio made famous. And just the light hitting Matthew, and he can't even look up, and everyone looking at Jesus, and then one person, I think one person's looking at Matthew. I mean, just the drama behind it and the beautiful rendition of light on all the figures, and your mind just makes up everything that's around there. That, to me, was a kind of a, a connection with what I loved about animation and the traditional part of animation and what paintings were able to do. The Caravaggio was able to make us believe that this is real on a two-dimensional flat surface with paints. And before, I would fight painting. I was like, no. My parents were like, you should get into painting. And I'm like, no, I'm going to be an animator. All I need to know is how to draw. Any, any particular reason other than that? Like, you didn't no, like the process, I, you didn't like the outcome? It's because I knew that animators only drew. That's um, the only thing you do and is draw. And I'm, I was obsessed. So I knew what I wanted. To, I was very clear with my path, what I wanted to do. And then my parents still give me crap till today. They're like, you don't want to paint, huh? See? See what happens? Oh, yeah. Rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Rightfully. So mm -hmm. anyway, so yeah. And then I changed my path, got into painting. Obviously, it was an easy transition because I love, and just the process. I love process. I love just being in there and just really working away at it and trying to get something that, it's like having a, a carrot in front of you. Right, with the stick. Yeah. You know, you're almost reaching it, but you never really, 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 really reach it. So from there, I went to Italy. It was very quick. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I applied. I was lucky enough to get accepted. And I went for three years, and I learned the traditional techniques of the masters. So it's a lineage of Antigone, and it's essentially um, from Jerome, um, the school of Jerome in uh, the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Jean Leon. Uh, Jean Leon Jerome. Thank the you. very same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who studied with Under Delacroix. Yeah. And um, so he created these plates, this book with uh, Bart, uh, Charles Bart. And, um, and Antigone, you know, comes from that lineage. And then the, the painter that I studied under, Maestro Michael John Angel, that from that point on, you know, I learned the proper way of drawing a painting, and I felt I actually had the right tools to kind of express my what I wanted to express as an artist. And then from there, I came back. I came here, and the rest is history. So that's where I'm at today. And I got I, I went to graduate school a couple of years ago. I graduated this year. Congratulations. From MCAT. Thank you. Um, from MCAT, got my MFA, and yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at today. I like capturing, you know, what's happening around me, being kind of like a visual journalist in a way. Um, kind of like what Rockwell was doing in a certain, a certain capacity. But I was seeing if I wanted to go down that route. But it wasn't really personal to me. So then I started doing a lot of more uh, self-portraits. And then I started depleting the color of my self-portraits. So it was just black and white. Mm -hmm. It became poetic and became more personal. And um, I started finding a little bit of light towards that direction. So then I started molding into going for more of a social commentary where I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And then the work started speaking for itself where it became, you know, a, a grisaille painting in a way, right? For those listeners who don't know, please explain grisaille. Grisaille is just a, a, just a tonal painting, right? So it's just black and white. Mm -hmm. Or it's not an umber, or it's not, you know, it's not a brown and white. You want to, uh, it's not an imprimatura, it's just a, it's a black and white. So it's just like a tonal painting. Black and white as in like a... 
Grayscale. Um, gray yes. Grisai. Grisai. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then I started forming more of a direction I wanted to go with. You know, I started thinking of, you know, due to the political climate at that time, you know, with a certain individual being elected into our office. I'm not going to say his name because I feel like it's going to pop up. <laughs> shadow mm-hmm. um, I'm not offering him any tea. <laughs> Zero tea. But, you know, it was a lot of like, um, it was a lot of issues with immigration at the time. It was a lot of issues with, um, you know, immigrants in this country. And my parents are immigrants to this country from South America. Mm-hmm. So it became a very personal issue to me. And then I started thinking of my own identity, how I really, how I fit within my environment, my community. And I've never, you know, other than being in Florida and Miami and so on, Miami is a melting pot, mm-hmm. as you may know. Being outside of that, going to Italy and then coming here, it's a complete opposite than what I'm used to. So it's been a, it's been a learning experience and it's still kind of a learning experience to me, you know, not being surrounded by a lot of Latinos. There's not much diverse. It, there's pockets of it here. Sure. So I yeah. can't completely say that it's, it's not a lot. I guess it's where you're at. So, but that was a reason kind of getting into the direction where I went with my thesis of talking about my community and my, the Latino community around me. I'm Latino and my Latino friends. So that's where I, I found models where it was mainly the people that I know, but how well do I actually know them? For example, we know each other. You and I know each other, this right? This is true. But how much do we actually know each other other than having this conversation in front of us for two or an hour or 20 minutes or 30 minutes? If we didn't have this time, I mean, how well would I know you? How well would you know me? Mm-hmm. You know, to actually consider you as a community or as a friend and so on. So I really took, so that took a, a life of its own. You know, I started seeing that, you know, when I started finding these models, I started finding, um, not models, I started interviewing my friends, that friends that I've known for seven years, one of them I've known for seven years, that I actually really didn't know him really that, that much. Like, I I. I knew I knew him from the superficial level, right? The, yeah. Like, if we're looking at this table, I knew him, you know, but when I started scratching the surface, I started really seeing those lines. I started seeing what made him. And it was powerful. It really was powerful. It, it became, you know, when he was, he started to speak and started telling me his story, it became a therapeutic session for him, you know? And, and it became like that with all the sitters. And it was really interesting. And I didn't have anything set, written out. I didn't yeah. have anything. I kind of knew what I wanted to ask as, as far as identity, being sure. Latino and so on. But that wasn't my main question. If we came up to that, great. But I just wanted to see how they were. Just talk. And it was like a flunking. And I told him, like, I'm going to be recording this if that's okay. You know, I'm going to paint from this conversation. I wasn't painting when I was conversing with them. Okay. Because that took away from the experience sure, of me. absolutely. Kind of like how we are right now. You know, if I was just to be drawing, if you were to be drawing this whole time, I'm not going to feel a connection mm-hmm. to want to talk. And so the, those conversations just, it really became the the core of, of the experience, of the process of making the, those paintings. So without those conversations, those paintings wouldn't be where they were at. Where they wouldn't have the, the results where they're at right now, so... It's, they're still morphing in a way, you know. I'm still kind of working them out. Um, I enjoy them. I really do enjoy them. It's it's not just taking a picture or just painting the person. Mm-hmm. It's more than that. And yeah, it's I, I love it. The paintings represent your connection to the person. 
The paintings represent my connection to the person, and I'm talking about myself as well. I'm describing this individual to, to the world mm-hmm. through these paintings. And I'm doing that with different techniques, right? Different eras of art, you know, different... It's the history of art. And that's what I love about portraiture is that it's, it's been in existence for... Since the Byzantine era, right? Portraiture. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're talking about, you know, they, they would paint Jesus, you know? Yeah, right, yeah, I was, gonna, I was just going to say, like, Jesus and Mary... That's it. Specifically. That's it. They were the only two people. The only two people. And Jesus was an ugly baby. Yeah. Byzantine era, they had the gold leaves. That's what saved the Byzantine era. Gold leafy. But it's it's evolved, right? The way it's evolved and it's still relevant today with photography and still with oil painting. But it's still relevant today and that's what I love about it. And so with these paintings, with my paintings, it's more the sense of how can I how can I bring all these different genres and make it into and, and morph it into a contemporary painting? So it's a it's a classical take of a contemporary take of classical portraiture. Okay. Certain figures, certain portraits are in a classical pose. If we look at Frankie, for example, I always think of of somewhat of a Mona Lisa in a way, mm-hmm. which you know they're kind of grinning at you, and but you're not really too sure of the gaze, and you know the hands crossed but there's something happening there and i wanted to kind of push that and see what i would react to that with our conversation but as well with the the history part of of of, uh, the mona lisa right but it's it's something that i'm extremely uncomfortable doing every time in process in process yes okay and that's why i like doing them you know and there's a hierarchy to these paintings you know i love oil paintings i love oil paintings and I would love to do, uh, do each of these portraits in oils, just in oils. Just in oils. But I hold myself back every time because all those other mediums are extremely difficult for me to do because I can't render shit out of them. You yeah. know, like yes. I can with oils. Yeah. You know, with that I have to... I you can obsess. Yeah, yeah, I get really obsessed. You can obsess. But with this I have to keep things two-dimensional at times. Not play with patterns, play with design. Mm-hmm. And things that don't come natural to me what comes natural to me is obsessing over you know the getting the right tonality of the hand getting the right texture of the face of the hair but to leave things as is just with one stroke that's the hardest part for me with that painting and people always think it's the other way around when i talk to them about it and that's why i i like going this route thinking of you know history not only history but also to push myself in different directions and uncomfortable with each painting because if I get too comfortable I get too complacent I don't see any growth with each painting so Frankie um, I'm sorry the painting is actually titled La Mirada yeah. so it translates the gaze right the look so it's of a colleague of mine in grad school they're a very good friend of mine they're from Colombia and they just you know I, I when I got into this project I'm going down this direction I always knew I wanted to paint them. They they're super interesting to me. You know, they first of all when I when I sat down and talked to them, they they just clearly identified themselves as them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was probably two days before you know they made that decision. Well, not well, decided to come out with mm-hmm. it. And I never asked about it. I never even you know even thought about it. And to have this conversation with them and kind of talk to them about it and for them to just open up to me about it was powerful. And I felt like I had 
I had a huge responsibility with the painting. It took a new meaning, it took a new level to that painting with me um, to create it. So with this, I wanted to, I, wa I didn't want to do the whole body. I wanted to be more in your face, more of a intimate con uh, space with the viewer. I wanted them to take more presence in the, in, in the composition. I was thinking of Mona Lisa because Mona Lisa, everyone always thinks of is Mona Lisa a woman? Is it Mona Lisa a man? Is Mona Lisa all these? Is it Da Vinci? Is it Da Vinci? Which is all right. Whatever. We can we can dissect it in it's different fine. ways. Mm -hmm. But with with uh, La Mirada, there's a mysteriousness to it, and I really enjoy that part. Originally, Frankie was looking off to the left, uh, off to the distance, and I had them looking off to the distance. But I wanted them to actually look away from you. But looking at you, but kind of they're not making eye contact, mm -hmm. but they're kind of doing this. They're looking right there, but not really making that connection. And I want the viewer to stand in front of these paintings, you know, and, and kind of read them and stay with it for a long period of time rather than just looking at it and walking away, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm attracting the viewer not only with, you know, the oil painting, but as well as with the mm -hmm. flat colors and the, and the saturated colors to kind of bring them into the painting and have them. I want to be that light with the fly. A lot of these paintings have recordings to go with them. I was going to ask about that. What do you do with the recordings? So the recordings, so when I had these paintings displayed, I had a barcode, uh, a, a QR code next to the painting. So people would be able to, you know, go with their phone, get the QR code, and they can hear the conversation. And the conversations are all in Spanish. And that's the exclusivity that I'm creating with the viewer Right, and it's that's, you know that we're speaking in, in our native tongue, and they're be they're be able to they're they're able to speak freely to me. I'm able to speak freely to them, and all these mannerisms, they, all these mannerisms are coming out in our own language, and I want the viewer to experience that. It's not yeah. only a portrait painting, but it's it's a history of this individual, a history of this sitter that I'm not catering to the viewer. I'm not catering to the to the person listening. I'm not translating in English. I want them to do the work as well. I want them to feel a little uncomfortable as much as I'm feeling uncomfortable creating the painting, but feeling uncomfortable of not really understanding what's happening, but trusting me that something is occurring there. As someone who doesn't understand a lot of Spanish, by having your interviews entirely in Spanish, you're forcing your viewer to pick out other clues, just like you are in your visual piece. You're tying that experience into a nice little bow. Yes, yes, yes. And you know what, I understand that people are not able to sit in front of a piece for an hour and a half and listen to a conversation, or 30 minutes, or even 15 minutes. Uh -huh. But for them to know that there's more to this portrait painting than the paint itself, that this is an actual person living, right? This is a living person. This is, there's a story to this painting. And I also want these paintings to live without the audio. I don't want them to coexist they have they, I don't want them to, to be dependent on each other but I think with the audio it becomes a more powerful experience with the viewer you know in renaissance pieces the the subject was meant as a subject of veneration right mm -hmm. is there any veneration in your portraits yeah there is a hierarchy for sure yeah for sure I mean like I said the the the, the technique itself presents a hierarchy where I want the viewer to kind of, you know, the more the more rendered part of the painting, that's where I want the viewer to kind of stay at the most. And then 
the least rendered or the more flat two-dimensional shapes. That's where the least information is happening, right? Okay. So I want the viewer to kind of see that and kind of get lost, but still stick around. Right? Let's talk about the background in this piece. You mentioned that there were very specific reasons that that specific types of images were chosen for the background. Yeah. How did you create this background and is this from life or is this mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, you this is from life. you created the scene and yeah. then drew from that correct so okay I, I i don't know if this was recorded earlier but i always go to the the model's location i always go to their environment when i interview them i never have them come to my studio or my house i always go to their environment because i want them to be in their comfortable space to talk about you know themselves and I feel like once you take them out of that environment there's a little bit of a barrier mm -hmm. even though you've known them for a while you know there's still you want them to be comfortable right yeah. um, so I went to it's always at their environment and this is their studio uh, they had okay. their work there they had you know this was their favorite chair this was their work in the background but Bowie's there but you know they love music is one of their one of their cornerstones of their life um, Bowie is just everything to them as well as their mom mm -hmm. um, as well as their sexuality you know and you know they don't identify with one or the other they feel very strong about making an imprint as a woman in the design field but yet identify themselves as you know a man a certain, to a certain extent. Sure. So that's why I have Women for All as well in the back in the background. They love taking notes. Um, the, a lot of the pieces around there, like the, the exist, the little tablecloth on, on their left side and the little base with the rock, those are pieces that they worked on in the past with poems, um, with one of their design works as well. So it's all related to the sitter in one way, one shape, form or the other with their family history, with their identity. Um, and what what comes out in their conversation with them, right? Um, this is they they usually don't dress like this until that point. They completely change their identity. They change their hair color. They change the way they dress. Not for the not for the not for the interview that we had, but it's what they started dressing like, and they became more comfortable in their skin. Mm -hmm. And I and I, I thought it was amazing because I don't ask them to dress a certain way. I don't ask right. them to set the room a certain way. I just come into their environment and then... So I, I like the spontaneity of it in a certain way. I think if, if it's too staged, it's going to seem fake. Um, even though yeah. they do look collage and look staged in a way, but to me, it's doesn't, it doesn't have that feel. If people wanted to find you online, mm -hmm. where would they go? Uh, JonathanAller.com. Okay. J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-A-L-L-E-R.com. And then I mainly post a lot on Instagram. Um, so on Instagram is John Aller Paintings or Jonathan Aller, mm -hmm. one of those two. Not a lot of people have my last name, so it's Jonathan Aller. But my blog is John Aller, John Aller dot blogspot dot com. Dot com. Yeah, John Aller, John Aller Painting, John Aller. It's on there. It's on main. It's in the okay. main part or the biography. It's in the under the biography part of my I'm website. Right so it's now. to the right. John Aller dot blogspot dot com. There it is. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. John, so, thank you so much for letting me harass you about your process. Thank you for having me. And your pieces. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. 
This week, I'm going to talk about an exhibition at the Russian Museum of Art called From Nonconformism to Feminisms, Russian Women Artists from the Kolodzai Art Foundation. And actually, this was my very first visit to the Russian Museum of Art, although I have wanted to go for years. Was it your first time, Sarah? It, it was my first time. I've heard about it for a long time. Um, since I've been in Minnesota for a couple of years, I've heard about it. But I've never actually uh, taken the time to go and... I, I recommend it. I mean, the building is beautiful to start off with, but the collection is pretty great, too. Yeah, if you ever want a motivator for why you should go to all of the art institutions that you always said you would go to but never did, start a podcast. <laughs> Can confirm. Does increase availability of, of art-related things all of a sudden. <laughs> all right. Well, moving forward, I thought to myself... To understand this exhibition, I think I need to know what is the Kolodzai Art Foundation. And so the Kolodzai family is actually a mother-daughter team of collectors, Tatiana and Natalia Kolodzai. Uh, and Tatiana, the mother, was actually a curator of Russian nonconformist art in the 70s, if not longer. And I really like that this is a mother-daughter team, being as this is a nonconformist and into feminist exhibition. Um, together, in the 90s, they started to uh, build their foundation for cultural and education purposes. Um, they got some help from American sponsors and admirers of their collection to do this. Um, and this exhibition was actually created by that foundation, and it travels around. Um, I saw that it was in New York previously, so it's uh, it's not something that is that the that the museum holds and is made up um, internally. But just in case you're not aware, sometimes exhibitions are created in one place, and then museums. Uh, reach out or bid on them or what have you, and they travel around. So that is how this one made its way to Minneapolis. And this exhibition does show a wide variety of media. It's got anything from works on paper to video and kind of a mechanic, electric, architectural installation. Yes, so that's close enough. Yeah, there's a lot of variety. Um, and so really what this this exhibition is trying to do is highlight the importance of experimentation within artistic media for contemporary Russian women artists and this wide range. And also when you look and kind of see how it um, deals with their, their time period really does show a wide range of experimentation. Um, one one thing I found interesting was I did a little dive into some history behind this exhibition because I really personally don't know much about Russian history. So this was a great uh, learning opportunity for myself. And so I'm going to uh, bestow that knowledge upon you all and Sarah. Are you ready? Oh, man. I, I don't. Do I have any choice? I don't think I do. Continue. <laughs> Great. So uh, the artworks span the time throughout the, and excuse me again for my Russian pronunciation, uh, Khrushchev's thaw, quote unquote thaw, um, to the art of post-Soviet decade and present day. So 
I was wondering what is the Khrushchev thaw? And according to Wikipedia, yeah, that's right, the mm-hmm. most reliable mm-hmm. historical and art historical resource. Academic. Um, Yes, I have a master's degree, and mm-hmm. Wikipedia is how I did it. No, I'm just kidding. Don't. <laughs> if you're studying right now, don't do it. Don't do that. Um, don't do that. Uh, but it says that the Kirchhoff Thaw was a period from the early 1950s and early 1960s when repression and censorship in the Soviet Union was relaxed and millions of Soviet political prisoners were released from gulag labor camps due to Nikita Khrushchev's policies of de-Stalinization and peaceful coexistence with other nations. Uh, The thaw became possible after the death of Joseph Stalin in March of 1953, and First Secretary Khrushchev denounced the former General Secretary Stalin and then ousted pro-Stalinists during his power struggle in the Kremlin. And also, Kremlin is one of these words that I've heard a lot but never really knew. So just for those of you who maybe are similar to me. The name Kremlin means fortress inside a city. And so there are many Kremlins, uh, I think maybe in Moscow and maybe in Russia as well, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, a, like a fortified castle or something within a city. And so, uh, now it serves as the official residence of the president of the Russian Federation. So it might be, you know, roughly translated to, uh, his struggle for the white house, you know, just, to compare it to American terms. <laughs> to American politics. Right. Yeah. So, um, and a good quote uh, from the statement of the exhibition is that the exhibition is a visual exploration of the development and accomplishments of women artists from Russia. So that's a good kind of encompassing statement. Mm-hmm. Um One of my favorite works, and I think Sarah enjoyed this too, was by artist Tatiana Antonshina, um, which is also transliterated. Transliterated, a new word that I learned today, which is using the closest spelling or translation from one language to another. Closest. Um, So so when I looked up her website, it's actually like Tania. But I think maybe they say it in a way that that we would write out Tatiana. Anyways, little vocab lesson on top of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so Tatiana had a project called the Museum of a Woman, and she recognized the disparity of female nudity versus male nudity in you know art history. And each time she walked into an institution, and even though females make up 50% of the population, and so do males. She then took classic pieces of art and through photography restaged them, replaced the female nudes with male nudes. So a couple of my favorites were uh, paired together and uh, she made photographic recreations of Luncheon on the Grass and Olympia by Edouard Manet. Um, so these were you know, realistic, they're photographs, but Olympia is a man, uh, and also the, the, uh, figure naked staring at the, you know, the, the camera in this case, but out at the viewer, um, is male. And then the counterparts are female when in the real makings of these oil paintings, um, they are male and clothed. But they are now female and clothed, and so that that was um, an interesting 
interesting spin. And of course, these are really, really recognizable pieces. So you can just walk up and see them right away. And they're a bit, a bit cheeky. Um, and, you know, obviously a little, a little feminist in this kind of, well, going to flip it around kind of a mm-hmm. kind of a stance. Yeah. I mean, feminist only in that the power dynamic has changed. Um, and the, and of course the, I don't know, the, the naked man, the switching of the gaze specifically, uh, switching of objectification. Yeah. Now that I say that out loud, there's a lot of feminist aspects to this piece. Well, and also in the wall text, I believe it says that one of her motivations was that, I mean, for her, seeing a female nude doesn't do as much for her in the fantasy world. And so she decided that she wanted to see some more male nudes. So you know what? That's, that's feminist as well. Like, this is what I find pleasure in, and so I'm going to create that for myself. Hey, Jace, I guess what? What? I took a picture of that didactic. I I've also got... did. Oh, ooh, wait. So can I not read this from it? This is why we work. You can read from it. Go ahead. Tatiana says, quote, depictions of male nudity were common in antiquity, but became increasingly less frequent with the advance of modern age. I thought in disappointment, female nudes are beautiful, but they do not touch me as much as the beauty of a male body could. What if there were a museum where all nudes were those of men? Most likely you would assume that these paintings by... These are paintings by homosexual artists, but women represent half the world's population. Why didn't it occur to you that it is a museum intended for women? Ah, oh, such a good quote. Calling out the patriarchy in art history. The women artists were there the whole time. Just no one was talking about them. <laughs> I mean, this Snaps also... Snaps to you, Tatiana. Like, yeah, I know. And this is, you know particularly a, a heterosexual thing but um but yeah i i like that i like that that take on it and i like the the public statement that she says about it yeah yeah good for you good for you tatiana homegirl's just vision boarding her her truth she's living her best life rock on yeah she is for sure one thing that struck me is that these artworks are kind of more meant to show a passage of time and style. This isn't a very, uh, you know, just scholarly, rigorous, highly conceptual, deeply researched exhibition, um, which, which is one way of doing it. Um, this exhibition is politically minded often because it kind of shows these women exploring with these more modernist styles. They're, so they're breaking away from this realist tradition and using social realism style to show kind of real life in their area at their time. And then also moving on to employing some feminist flavors, like we were talking about to, to give equal representation to women as well. So this more provides a survey, um, even though it's not necessarily tightly knit around a very academically 
challenging concept. Um, but not all, not all ex- exhibitions have to be. This does kind of promote some accessibility. And it, it does give a good jumping off point because you kind of see this survey from a lot of different artists in a lot of different eras. Um, and it is a collection. So usually collections, you know, obviously they're built over years and years. And a lot of collectors do, you know, have uh, an area that they tend to focus on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all based around one concept or a very, very tightly defined idea. Um, and so that's why you will see you will see a lot of exhibitions that come from collections because they are they do offer this this kind of survey and kind of a you know a direction or a perspective that was built over time which is something that this show provides and obviously there's a lot of value in it and also it's support for women artists and it also draws you in to visit a smaller institution in the Twin Cities rather than you know other larger cultural institutions that get a lot of love so I would recommend checking out the Museum of Russian Art, and especially for for this exhibition. And I kind of wish that some of the knowledge that I have bestowed upon you, I had known before I went in. So here you are. I am paying it forward, and, and hopefully this can help enrich your experience, because it, it would have helped me personally to kind of know about who's behind the collection, what what was the driving political ideas behind this and how, how long and, and what was kind of the purpose of this show? Because I will, I will admit I was a little unsure when I was there. I, I completely agree. And I think we had, we had talked about this when we were walking through the exhibition too. Um, I, I, of course, enjoyed it. It was lovely. I enjoyed specifically the range of media available. So there was painting, there was sculpture, there was robotics, there's uh, photography, there's um, projection art. All of those things were present, and it was it was fascinating and engaging to move through just visually. And, of course, there's all sorts of different sounds going on, too. But But because... It does come from this very specific collection, and because it focused on women artists, like I, I felt like I was missing some context. My my Russian art history is is very, very minimal. My knowledge of Russian art history is very minimal, and so I would have really appreciated a brief comparison. What what were what were artists doing before this time? you know, I, I'm assuming this was revolutionary in some respects. How was it revolutionary? Like it wasn't, it wasn't enough information for me, but I, I suppose that's just kind of the type of visitor that I am. I always have all of these questions that I demand to be answered. When I go into an art institution, I demand to be educated. (laughs) Educate me. I do think that this collection was obviously built by Russian women and, you know, is hosted by a Russian foundation and, you know, probably goes to cultural institutions that are Russian focused, obviously. So I think, you know, this was collected with probably a Russian audience in mind or, you know, somebody who would have a command of the history. So if someone just made a show and did a 
collection of women artists, let's say from the, you know, 1950s or 60s through today, and just said, you know, this is a Sarah Kensler collection she collected for these decades, and you put it up, you know, we wouldn't need a handheld walkthrough to know that, oh, this is talking about civil rights movement. This is talking about the sexual liberation. You know, this is talking about, um, you know, like birth control regulation regulations, or this is talking about, you know, so I think perhaps if you were more educated or had grown up in that environment, it would have been a little more intrinsic. That is why I had all these historical fun facts and whatnot, because that is something that I kind of wish that I had. So I think, I think we both had the same experience where we were both at the end, we were looking around like, cool, this was great. What happened here? <laughs> so I, I went to, what, how, how did we get I here? went to answer that question and I hope that this was informative and I hope that now, you know, our listeners are a little bit better prepared uh, to go view and enjoy and formulate their own thoughts about this exhibition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so too. I mean, this is this is good work that you've done, Jason. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, and if you do go and visit, let us know. Did we just say a bunch of things that you don't agree with? Tell us about it. We'd be happy to hear. Sarah loves being contradicted. Yes. Yes. yes <laughs> Awkward. Absolutely. <laughs> Always. I mean, I just. I, Yes, I, I do love contradiction because uh, because I'm a weirdo and it allows me an She'll opportunity to go intellectually. I yeah. Um, just as a heads up, everybody, it looks like uh, this exhibition goes through February 10th, 2019. Such a long time as of right now. You guys can still go. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with it. So, to listeners, uh, let's hop on over to the news. For the news this week, I stumbled upon a really great community-based program from the Courier Museum of Art in New Hampshire. It is specifically created for families suffering from the opioid crisis. Um, Just some stats. Approximately 72,000 Americans have died from drug overdoses in 2017 alone, which was last year. And um, I did not know this before reading this article, but uh, New Hampshire is apparently one of the one of the worst hit states by this specific epidemic. So according to the article that I found on hyperallergic, which we will be posting on the blog, of course, for your reference, um, in 2015, Manchester, New Hampshire accounted for nearly a quarter of fatal drug overdoses reported across the state. Just, just Manchester. <laughs> um, and I know, and it also has the third highest rate of drug overdose death in the nation. Um, three years later, the, you know, there's some improvement. There's been a slight decrease, um, but, but New Hampshire is, is having a really rough time. Um, and so the Courier Museum has created this program. Well, I'm sorry, more specifically, uh, Lynn Thompson, the assistant director of education and community engagement created a program called the art of hope. 
Um, it was actually a suggestion, apparently, by the museum's director, Alan Chong. Um, but really, it is it is one of those really great programs that brings together community engagement um, and and art and and it's a way. It's a really great shining example, I think, of how museums can use their power for good in their community, how art can make a difference. So uh, this is a completely free program to participate in. And it's actually a partnership with uh, Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. It's about safe space, specifically for relatives or friends of people who are going through uh, drug addiction um, and it really focuses on, you know, self-care, building a community of support um, and hope within that community. So participants of this program spend a few hours each week contemplating the museum's collection um, and and doing small art projects that that act as as coping mechanisms, a, a you know, a stand-in for maybe a, a more formal form of art therapy. Um, it, it focuses on, and I'm quoting again from the article here quite heavily, um, these healing tools are meant to mend broken relationships between families and their drug-using relatives. Um, so, so they'll do things like each session they'll go around and look at a work, um, the example they give in the article is an 18th century work by Claude Joseph Vernet from 1759. Um, and, and the piece is really, it's this really beautiful, vastly atmospheric piece with dark storm clouds at the top, a raging sea at the bottom, people struggling in the center. There is a large ship capsizing in the background. There's a huge storm coming. I really love this social aspect that it's creating because I haven't had this experience personally, but I just imagine that, you know, turning these people's uh, attention to some self-care because they're providing so much care to their loved one who is going through or, you know, has been through uh, drug addiction, that it, it gives them a little, it gives them a a reason to spend some time on themselves and to work through their own feelings and also to have this community because how, you know, it, you know, it provides a, a social space where you don't have to go through this alone or just in between you and your own family members who deal with it every day that you have a community of, people beyond your own household that you can connect with when you come when you are talking about the art you know that maybe other people are seeing it in the way that you do that perhaps you know you're being understood in a certain way with this community that you that you maybe wouldn't with the with the greater population I, I completely agree I think the element of community building is is huge and the fact that you know the that the courier can facilitate this using visual art is is a really it's a really easily identifiable way to start. I mean, we're visual creatures as a species, so um, so doing this allows us to to have something to connect to, 
before we connect to other people. It, it acts as an intermediary. And, um, and actually there are elements of this program that, that deal with looking inwards, um, focusing on yourself, uh, slowing down and taking a few minutes to breathe, to quote the creator of this program, recognizing the burden that drug addiction places on a family, using what's already in their collection, what's already at their disposal. The Courier has created a new type of program, one that takes place in an institution but doesn't cost anything. It is, you know, come and go as you please. There's no registration. So they're removing some of those social and financial barriers to help. Um, it's, it's really, really good, good work. And, and I'm so excited to see how this program progresses. I am really um, in admiration about how they're responding to their community specifically, um, as we as we heard that this state of New Hampshire and this city specifically have a really high rate of drug addiction and drug overdose. And this museum isn't standing idly by and saying, "Oh, well, we're we're in." An art, we're an art institution, uh, we're cultural, and we're not going to get into this thing that's out of our realm. It's seeing itself as a community institution and responding to its community. Obviously, there are, there are lots of problems that, you know, affect the whole country and beyond. You know, obviously, opioid addiction, addiction in general, is a nation worldwide, you know, um, phenomenon. But because of this this high concentration due to its geographical location um they're really saying this this is you know something for our community that is a forefront concern and we are reaching out into it into our community and into the problem rather than drawing a line and saying that oh we don't talk about this here or we don't, you know, we're, we're not involved in that part of the greater community. I, I agree. And I think it's, it's probably more common to see, um, to see institutions, you know, support the community goals, um, but only tangentially, mm -hmm. right? Like they'll, and sometimes that's all they can do to be fair. Um, but but they'll say like, yes, we, you know, we support equality or we will support raising people up out of poverty, um, you know, focusing on the middle class, uh, financial equality, et cetera. And what, what this museum did, what the courier did was start with a question, which was, what is Manchester dealing with now? And what does the community need? And that's it. And then from there, they they used their resources, things that they already had. They they used their people inside their institution, which I cannot commend them enough for. It sounds like they have a wonderful staff who's really connected with what the community needs. Um, and it just it makes them a stronger institution because institutions like these are only supported by community. Giving back seems necessary and obvious. I would agree. And 
I'm wondering what kind of programming is specific to Minneapolis and St. Paul? What could, you know, something like Mia or the Minnesota Historical Society or the Minnesota Museum of American Art, something like that, some other, you know, close-knit community institution, what what could what are some of the things they could consider that are the needs that are at the forefront of our community? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of community programs out there now. They're just hard to find. Um, for example, that's why we're here. That's why that is why we're here. Uh, two two that I can think of off the top of my head in the moment. I know that awesome or that's A U S M, the Autism Society of Minnesota. I know that they work with um, institutions and community organizations to provide um, special sensory outings for families who have autistic members. Um, I mean, this is specifically geared towards little kids. I think most of the time, but but the you know the Minnesota Zoo has a, a sensory friendly. Uh, day. So does Como. Um, that's all something that you can find on Awesome's website, which is ausm.org. The other one that I'm thinking of specifically is the SMART program. This is through the Hennepin Library System in Hennepin County. You can go to their website, sign in with your library card ID number, and you can pick and choose from free and discounted outings to the theater, to the orchestra, to museums. That's something that's been going on for a long time. I know it was in hibernation a couple of years ago, but now it's back. So so those are things that that I know exist. And I think the only barrier right now is that you kind of have to know about them before you find them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Another one I can think of is Avivo Artworks mm, um, yes. that we know of from our interview with Jess Reyes. Um, when I was working at the museum, um, and Avivo is a art foundation gallery studio space that works with artists who um, experience mental illness, and they do they come to Mia to do a tour, I believe, and then the guide will tell people to close their eyes and leave them at certain pieces that they visited that day. And then you're supposed to ask yourself a question and open your eyes and then interpret how that piece, you know, you know, deals with your question. So that's just another fun example. Yeah. I mean, again, like that's, these programs do exist for sure. It's just that, I think, again, you have to kind of know what you're looking for, which presents a barrier. So there's got to be a way to get around that barrier and make sure that the programs are not only accessible like when you arrive, they're accessible uh, before that. They are widely known, widely promoted, uh, widely available. That's a type of accessibility that I don't think it's talked about a lot. Right. And a lot of these are nonprofits who face, you know, obviously a lot of difficulties with, with budgeting and obviously marketing isn't necessarily always one that rises to the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But hey, we do this and we're here to talk about your thing. So please, Soda, everybody, 
tell us about your thing. We want to talk about it. We want to tell people and get it out there. We will do a little bit of marketing for free. So just please let us know. I completely agree. If, if anybody has any programs that we've missed or we haven't thought of or that we don't even know about, please, please, please share. We are, we are here to promote these, these options to people, among other things, obviously. a listen everybody you can find our show notes and other information about us at sodapodcast.blog please email us we prompted you a lot about that you can do that at stateoftheartspod at gmail.com we're also on instagram and facebook at state of the arts pod or just search for state of the arts podcast if you have a minute please review us on itunes it really helps with ratings it gets the word out there about the podcast share with some friends that's the whole point we also have a patreon if you would like to donate that would really help us out there's a donate tab on our website and this will help us cover the costs of producing the podcast and of course our music is provided by the von tramps join sarah at their concert on january 14th i can't be there go with her I'm going to go, though. Woo-woo, bomb tramps, here I come. I wanted to do something a little Christmassy, as this is our last uh, episode that we're releasing before the holidays. Uh-huh. And also, you know, this week I reviewed the Museum of Russian Art, and so I found something wonderfully terrible that brings those two things together. Are you ready? I don't know, but I guess it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> yes. So actually, I, I got this from my friend from Germany. So, Leonard, es tut mir leid, wenn ich das falsch sage. So here we go. <clears throat> so a couple is walking through St. Petersburg Square, and it begins to precipitate, and... The man says, oh, well, it looks like it's raining out here. And the woman says, no, 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 it's, it's actually snow. And he's like, well, look at that uh, member of the Russian military over there, um, Comrade Rudolph. Uh, could you tell us what this precipitation is? And he says, oh, yes, it is, it's definitely raining out here. And the man turns to the woman and says, see, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer you're welcome and i am so sorry no don't be sorry that was that was glorious and completely unexpected (laughs) and that is what you can always expect from me the gloriously unexpected unexpected. (laughs) expect the gloriously unexpected we need to make t-shirts about that yeah, and it'll be our podcast shirts. Okay, I'm sorry, everybody. Happy holidays. No, don't be sorry. Happy holidays. <laughs>